If you've ever been to rural Montana, you know rural Montana can be a, a hard place, difficult place. Uh, unemployment is high there. Uh, alcoholism is a severe problem. People there are fiercely independent. I used to take mission trips, uh, mission teams into rural Montana. And we, we'd go in, we'd partner with rural churches there. And I'd find pastors who were committed to reaching their community for Jesus. And I talked to these pastors, and most of, most of these guys, you know, they're, they're guys who they don't have any kind of formal training. They've got to work another job to make ends meet, but they're just faithful men who have a passion to reach their city. And so we'd go in, we'd take a team, and, and we'd partner with them. And we'd do all kinds of things. We'd put on a VBS for the town, and it's the type of VBS that a big city would be proud to have, you know, and we do service projects for the town. We do things like painting schools and uh, mowing lawns, repairing bleachers. We put on sports camps for the teenagers. We do basketball, soccer, dance, things like that. In the evenings, we put on a community barbecue. There'd be music. We'd have uh, bouncy houses, inflatables and stuff for the kids, and we'd share the gospel and give them a free meal, and, uh, and it was great. But we went there, and as I met with these pastors, I told them that, hey, the purpose of this is to hand it off over to you, that we want to train you, we want to equip you so that you can be the ones to reach your own town. So we're going to partner with you for seven years, and over those seven years, we're going to work on equipping you and handing this ministry off to you so that you can be the ones to reach your town. One of the towns that we partnered with was a town called Plains, Montana. Plains is so small, if you blink, you pretty much drive right through it. And it's a town of about a thousand people, and we were running a vacation Bible school of about 150 kids. We had to meet outside the community park, and before we showed up, I don't even think they had a vacation Bible school in, in the town. And so we're running this, but we knew that, hey, we've got to transition this. We've got to hand this off. And so we began praying for who could be the person to take this over. And there was a lady named Carrie. And as we prayed, we knew that Carrie would be the one, that she was the one. She was married to an alcoholic husband. She had several kids. She was hardworking, probably overworked, but we knew that she was the one. And so we met and we told her, hey, here's what we're doing. And we've got to hand this off and you're going to be the one who's going to run this vacation Bible school. Everyone in the room believed except Carrie. She was the only one in the room who didn't believe. You know, sometimes life can be so brutal, can it? So difficult, so hard that you just kind of need someone to believe for you. You, you. you need someone to encourage you, someone to invest in you, someone, someone just to come behind you and give you that spark when you're not sure you can do it. Kind of the way Barnabas did for John Mark. Turn with me in your Bibles to, Matt, to Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Acts 15, 36 through 41. As we've been studying through our series titled Made to Move, we see this transformational church has just survived a monumental crisis. That they've had the Jerusalem council and they've affirmed the Gentile church and Paul and Barnabas, they're back in Antioch and they're training the church there, teaching again. But the time has come for another missionary journey, a second missionary journey. And that's where we pick up the story, Acts 15, verses 35 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, 
Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of our Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So make no mistake about it. Paul was right. Paul was right. Some people read this passage and they paint Paul as a heartless and harsh, that he had no compassion. But you got to understand the tough work he was doing. He's planning churches in the most pagan empire on the history of the planet. I mean, no Christian had ever been to these places before. These, these were Gentiles with all kind of evil practices. This stuff was not for the faint of heart. And more than once, Paul, he will remind us later in his letters just how much he had to suffer for the faith, what he had to go through as he went on these missionary journeys, how many times he was thrown into jail, how many times he was beaten, how many times his life was threatened over and over and over again for the sake of the gospel. And now he's going back to some of the same places that he's been before, facing some of the same enemies, an enemy who left him for dead. He's got some of the same obstacles that he's going to face. This was not for the weak. This was not for the faint of heart. This trip was not for some guy trying to figure out who he was. John Mark, he'd already proven himself to be a coward under fire, and Paul didn't have time to watch his back as well as try to watch John Mark's back. You're either all in or you're out. See, Paul, he didn't have time to babysit John Mark. He had a mission to do. He had work to do. Paul was right. I mean, Luke tells us that, that uh, the sin that John Mark had committed before in that moment was apostasy. Luke 9 tells what Jesus tells us that anyone who puts his hand to the plow and turns away and turns back is not fit for the kingdom of God. John Mark had already turned back. This, this was what he had done. He had let go. Paul was right. But so was Barnabas. Barnabas, he's introduced to us as a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of the faith. And there was something in Barnabas that would not let John Mark go. Maybe it was because they were cousins. Maybe it was because Barnabas saw this potential in John Mark. I don't know, but he was committed to John Mark. He stood by him, and he was right too. He was committed to restoring another brother into proper fellowship and service to our God. Kind of the way Pastor Ethan talked about Jesus restoring the disciples, especially Peter, to proper fellowship and service to him after they had scattered. Barnabas was right too. They were both right. And they were both dug in. Paul and Barnabas, they've been through a lot together. I mean, you remember, right, all that they've been through. But neither of them were budging on this. Such a sharp disagreement that they said, hey, we can't work together anymore. Paul takes Silas. The church prays over them, sends them off, and then the rest of the book of Acts 
pretty much just follows the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In all the drama and all the action and all the exciting things and all the tough things, we see what happens with Paul. This is the last story that we have of Barnabas. We, we don't follow him when he goes and he takes John Mark. We don't know what happens. This is it for Barnabas. He kind of disappears from the scene. He gives up his position, his notoriety, because Luke is traveling with, uh, with Paul. And so Barnabas isn't going to be recorded anymore. He gave up all that for the sake of John Mark. The irony here is it's the same thing that Barnabas had done for Paul earlier. You remember, right? Paul gets converted. He has this great testimony on the Damascus Road. And then he's presented to the brothers. And the, the church is like, whoa, we can't trust this guy. We remember what he's done. He's the one who's been dragging Christians out of their homes and killing them. Now, this is probably some kind of trap. He's probably coming to get us. We can't trust him. And when no one would stand up for Paul, when everyone said, this guy's evil, he's not trustworthy, the one who stands up, Barnabas. He says, no, his testimony is for real. It's legit. We can trust him. Barnabas put his neck on the line for Paul. And even later, Paul, he has to go back to his hometown of Tarsus, right? He goes back there for his safety. And then he's there and he's teaching. And he's there for three years. There's no pastor search committee calling Paul saying, hey, you want to come pastor our church? Nobody's reached out to Paul. Barnabas, he gets up to Antioch and he thinks, I can't do this work by myself. I need someone who can come and help me. And he goes through Tarsus and he's knocking on every door and he's beating down the doors until he finds Paul. And he says, Paul, come with me. I need your help. Barnabas is the one who, in a sense, helped launch Paul's public ministry. And everything we get to read about it is because Barnabas would put his neck on the line for Paul when no one else would. And now he's doing the same thing for John Mark. Barnabas now stands up for John Mark. And Barnabas is not mentioned again. We do hear about John Mark again. He's mentioned a couple more times. One of those times at the end of Colossians. And at the end of Colossians, Paul is writing. And he mentions that John Mark is with him. And then another mention is Paul writing in 2 Timothy. And there, Paul, he's giving instructions to Timothy. And he says to Timothy, hey, bring my coat, bring my manuscripts. And hey, especially make sure that you bring John Mark to me. Because he is of great comfort to me. He is so useful to me. What happened between Acts and Colossians and 2 Timothy, we don't know. But something happened to restore the relationship between John Mark and Paul, but it wouldn't have happened if Barnabas didn't put his life on the line or his neck on the line, really, and say, hey, John Mark, I believe in you. When you turned away and everyone else now is saying, I, I don't know that really we want to bring this guy on this, Barnabas said, no, I'll, I'll take him. I'll invest in him. I'll encourage him. John Mark would later go on to write the Gospel of Mark. 
And many scholars believe that Matthew and Luke kind of use Mark's gospel as kind of the framework as they wrote their gospels. And so if you, if you read it, that's why they're called the synoptic gospels. They are similar. Matthew's gospel focuses primarily to the Jews, Luke's gospel primarily to the Gentiles, but using Mark perhaps as an outline as they wrote their own. What would have happened if Barnabas never would have stood up for that young man in Antioch? If Barnabas wouldn't have believed that, that God still wanted to use John Mark, even when John Mark might not have even believed that God still wanted to use him? Would we have the gospel of Mark? What would the gospels of Matthew and Luke, Luke look like without the gospel of Mark? For that matter, what would have happened if Barnabas never would have stood up for, for Paul? For Saul of Tarsus? What would have happened if he would have never put his neck on the line for him? All those letters that Paul wrote, over half of the New Testament. You see, so much of what we study in Scripture hinges on the faithfulness of Barnabas to men who no one else would put their name on. But Barnabas would. A man who believed that the life of Christ could be reproduced in the likes of Saul of Tarsus and John Mark by the power of the Holy Spirit. A church on the move believes that God can do great things. A church on the move believes that God can do great things, that he can use broken people. And so church on the move doesn't just look around and say, well, you know, if we had this or if we had that, it doesn't look around and just kind of focus on the limitations. It doesn't look to the fact that, hey, John Mark had left and Saul, he had been doing all this. No, it looks and it says, with God, all things are possible. That God can take someone whose faith has wavered and he can reproduce his life, the life of Christ in him. The focus on the church, of, of the church on a move, is on the sufficiency and the omnipotence of God, as well as on the profitability of the scriptures that he has provided us to equip us for every good work. God says, hey, if your focus is all here on circumstances and on what's happened before and that's where your focus is, you've got the wrong focus because apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible. A church on the move believes this and it can believe it for others even when they're not there themselves, when they're still questioning. Paul and Silas they're off, though, and they're the ones we're going to follow on this second missionary journey in Acts 16. In this trip, it, it's going to be a little longer than the first one. If you turn in the back of your Bibles and you see the map section there of, of Paul's missionary journeys, uh, you see that the, the second missionary journey is quite a bit longer than the first one. He retraces his steps. Paul's first journey started in modern-day Syria and then goes into western Turkey, modern-day western Turkey in the island of Cyprus. On this second trip, Paul and Silas, they're going to join those same locations. Acts uh, 16.5 says that those churches that they visit again, that they were strengthened and that they're increasing in their faith and that they're adding to their numbers daily, 
daily, not just on Sundays. They're adding to their numbers daily. The church was on the move. So excited about what God was doing in their lives. They cannot keep it to themselves. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. This is the greatest news they've ever heard. And it just has a way of coming out, not just on Sunday mornings, but on every single day of the week. And so this is what's happening. They're growing daily. And it's at this church in Lystra that he and Barnabas, they'd already planted. And here, Paul meets Timothy. And Timothy will be the young man who Paul invests in. Uh, What Paul had seen lacking in John Mark, he found in Timothy. He found a young man who's going to keep his hand to the plow. Timothy, he joins John Mark, or I'm sorry, Paul and Silas for the rest of the missionary trip. And this second trip, it just keeps on going, okay? They just go and go. It continues further west and further west and further west. They, they go into what's western Turkey and then on to Macedonia and Greece. It's a huge trip, lasting over three years. But it wasn't always clear where they should go. I want you to see it. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. Acts 16, 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. So these are all provinces, the the places that are mentioned there, Phrygia, Galatia, these are provinces in modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor. And Paul, he just keeps on traveling West. And you can imagine, okay, he's on this missionary journey. You go on a missionary journey because you want to share the gospel, That's why you're going. In every place Paul gets to, everywhere they they arrive, they can't share the gospel. The Holy Spirit keeps saying no. It's like they're running into dead end to dead end to dead end. These are places who need the gospel. Paul knows they need the gospel, but the Holy Spirit keeps on saying, not here, Paul. Keep on going, Paul. And so they just keep on going. This takes time, okay? It's not like they're just hopping on a plane and going. No, they, they continue to walk in every single, every single place. It's no, not yet. No, not yet. It's roadblock after roadblock. They're like mice in a maze. They just can't figure out where they're supposed to get to. See, behind all these closed doors, God had in mind to take Paul and more importantly, his gospel to a new continent. God had in mind to take Paul and the gospel to Europe. Maybe you're searching, maybe you're questioning how God can best use you. And you, you feel like you're running maybe into a bunch of closed doors, that, that you have ideas and plans for what you'd like to do, but you're just not sure what to do. And you try things, it just doesn't work out. And you're trying to find where you're gifted and where you can really be of the most impact for the kingdom. And no matter how hard you try, nothing seems to open. You feel like Paul, stumbling around in dry, barren Asia Minor, But Paul's story should give you some hope that behind those closed doors are not really closed doors at all, but they are the beginning of God's dreams for you, that he has other dreams for you. Because when God closes a good door, 
but we remain faithful and we keep praying and we keep studying and we keep loving that a better door will open. The psalmist said it, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. For Paul, that good thing was Europe. And so the men, they set sail. They go across the Aegean Sea and they make it to Europe. They make several stops along the way until they reach the city of Philippi. This is probably the city that, that Paul wanted to get to. It would have been a city that he was familiar with. It was a city, it wasn't as perverse as Pisidian Antioch that we talked about earlier. It wasn't as perverse as Corinth. It wasn't as technologically advanced as Athens or Alexandria. It, it was just a simple, strategic Roman military outpost. But because of the military presence in this location, the city around it grew. And with this, it becomes a city of intersection. You have military officers coming in and out in a city of influence. These are the types of places that Paul goes to. And so it's here that he goes. And, and Paul, if you follow Paul's ministry, you know his template. He arrives in a city and he looks for a synagogue. He starts with Jewish people who he can connect the Old Testament scriptures to and then point them to Jesus so that he can gather some of them and plant a church in the city. There's a problem in Philippi, though. There are not really very many Jews. There is no synagogue to go to. So without Jews, without a synagogue, it, it, you, you almost get the impression that these guys are kind of lost. Who are they supposed to talk with? Where's this church going to start from? Who are they supposed to go to first? What are they going to do? Who are the strategic people that they need to meet with? you kind of get the sense that they don't really know. And so they go to a place to pray. And as they're praying, the strategic person in Philippi shows up. And it probably is not the strategic person they thought it would be. Do you remember Paul's dream? He dreamt that a man came from Macedonia and told him, hey, we need your help. Come, help us. A man. But it wasn't a man at all. The first person that we have record of receiving and responding to the gospel in Europe was not a man. It was a woman named Lydia. She sold purple fabric. She wasn't even European. She was from Thyatira. That's over in Asia Minor. She moved to Philippi. The strategic person in Philippi was not even a Philippian, not even a European not even a Macedonian man, a woman from Thyatira named Lydia. Paul shares the good news. Lydia responds and she invites them into her house. Her family is saved. They're baptized, Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're in Lydia's house and they're going to use Lydia's house as a base of operations. This is where the first European church is planted. And her house becomes the first meeting place, the, ga the gathering place, the place of operations. It's, it's there. These men, not in their wildest dreams, probably, would they have predicted that, that a foreign woman, a woman foreign to Philippi, would become the key to getting this church established. I mean, come on. And yet, she was. And God continued to bring Paul unthinkable people. You continue to follow the story. And next, there's this demon-possessed slave girl 
whose owners used her for economic gain. They're, they're, they're getting rich off of her demonic ability to do some fortune telling. And you get this picture, you, you see this scene of this, this girl who just follows Paul around throughout his whole ministry. Wherever Paul goes, she shows up. And she just announces everywhere you go, hey, he's a servant of the Lord. He, he's going to tell you the way of salvation. He, she's like his personal MC, And she does it everywhere he goes. And Paul, you know, the first time, maybe it was cute. Okay, it was nice. But after a number of days of this, Paul is annoyed. The, the Bible actually says not just annoyed, but greatly annoyed. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's able to free her from her demon possession. But no, Paul saw her as an annoyance. This girl was just an annoyance to Paul. He, he, he tried being patient with her. He tried just ignoring this, but he had had enough, and then he healed her. Notice, he hadn't paid the personal attention before that. It was only after he was just fed up that he, that he heals her. But now this unexpected slave girl, she's healed, and she becomes a key as to what's going to happen next and who will be saved next. I want you to see it. It's kind of a long passage. at 16, 19 through 40. Verses 19 through 40. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaking, shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into the prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come here themselves and take us out. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Did you see that at the beginning? The owners of this slave girl, they care more about money. They care more about their economic gain than they do about her. She's freed now from this oppression that she's dealt with, this possession that she's lived through. She's free, but they don't care so much about that. They just care about, hey, where there's, where's their cash flow coming from? So they get Paul and Silas beaten, thrown in prison, get a mob around them, and you get the gory details of this one. We read how they are beaten with rods, how they, were, how they suffered many blows, how they are roughed up good. These guys would have been in bad shape, and then they're thrown in jail. And did you see what they were doing in the jail? It's midnight, and they're praying, singing hymns to God at midnight in the jail cell. I mean, if I was Silas and I was in there with Paul, I think Paul might have been singing a solo. I might have looked over at, at Paul and thought, okay, now I know what John Mark was talking about. Paul has lost his mind. I understand why he left now. Why? Because we typically praise God when the deliverance has occurred, right? We typically praise God and sing hymns and get all excited about what God's doing after we've been freed from whatever it is that's been attacking us. They're in the middle of it. They're there when it's bad. The praying we get, we understand that. The praising we can miss. But you see, a church on the move always worships. A church on the move always worships. There is always Praise because our circumstances become so minor that we're able to place them in their proper context. And then worship becomes the natural posture and something incredible happens. We realize that Paul and Silas are not the crazy ones after all. They're the ones really living. They're the ones who have joy. They're, they're the ones getting the most out of life, living life the way life is meant to be lived while everyone else is focused on circumstances and thinking about preferences and what I like and what will be good for me. And these guys are just looking at God and, hey, this is great, even when their circumstances are not great. The Philippian jailer, he comes out and notice Paul and Silas, they haven't shared the gospel or anything. Paul just yells out to him as he's about to kill himself, says, no, don't do that. The jailer comes over because he knew when times got tough, he knew that Paul and Silas had some answers that he didn't have. And he's the one who asked the question, what do I have to do to be saved? I've seen something in your life. I've seen this joy in your life that I haven't seen anywhere else. There's something different about you. I know you have this connection with God that I don't have. What do I have to do to be saved? And you have the glorious story of him being saved and his household being saved and, and how he just cares for their wounds and then they baptize him and his family. It's, it's a beautiful picture. But Paul would have never been in that jail with that Philippian jailer if not for that slave girl who kept following him around day after day just as his personal MC. And I don't know if she was trying to be annoying or what the purpose was there, but he would have never been there without her. Unexpected people, 
people that sometimes you tend to, to look past and look over and think, God, ah, maybe they, they don't seem important to you for whatever reason. A slave girl, and before that, a woman from Asia Minor. Who would have thought? And the journey continued for Paul and Cyrus, Silas and Timothy. They'd, get, they'd go on to Thessalonica, and, and Thessalonica was quite an experience. They had to pay off bribes to Thessalonican Jews so they would let them live. And from there, they go on to Berea, and the Thessalonican Jews, they stalk them all the way down to Berea and follow them there. And they have to leave again, forcing them to leave again. But along the way, along that journey, more unexpected people are getting saved. A Greek guy named Justin and um, high-placed women of power, Greek women of power and and high-standing men and churches are being planted. The the gospel continues going and the church is multiplying now in Europe because Paul believed that God's gospel could impact lives even unexpected lives. And before that, Barnabas had believed that God's gospel could impact his life and John Mark's life. And now we get to believe that the power of God's gospel can impact people like Carrie from Plains, Montana. You know, we trained Carrie. It wasn't just like, okay, you're in charge, go for it. No, we trained her over the course of years and showed her what to do and how to do it. And then the time came for her to lead the VBS in Plains, Montana. And I was taking the team to another town that year, but I drove down and wanted to check on the team in Plains and see how it was doing, how the VBS went. And I got there, and as soon as I saw Carrie, we kind of made eye contact, and she runs over to me and gives me a hug, and with tears in her eyes, she said, Steve, I never believed that God could have ever used me to do something like this, to speak in front of all these people, to share the gospel in front of all these kids. Maybe you need someone to believe in you. Maybe life's been tough, life's difficult, and and maybe you feel like, I don't know what I have to add to the kingdom of God. If that's you, I want you to send us an email this week. Send send me or Pastor Donnie, Pastor Ethan, Pastor Brian, let us know. you, You just want someone who will invest in you, who will disciple you, who will equip you to be of greater use to the kingdom. But if that's not you, 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 need, you need to look at others around you, young people in the faith who need someone like you to reach into their lives and to equip them, to invest in them, to disciple them. You know, our calling as a church is not to go out and, and produce professions of faith. It's to go and make disciples. That's a harder calling. That's more of an investment but that's what we're called to do. The work of discipleship and evangelism, it goes hand in hand, but it doesn't stop just when someone is saved. And praise God, it didn't stop for John Mark, that Barnabas continued to pour into his life, that it didn't stop for Paul, that Barnabas poured into his life, that it didn't stop for you, that it didn't stop for me, that it didn't stop for Carrie, that people poured into our lives so that we can be of better impact for the kingdom today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would choose to use the likes of John Mark, the likes of Paul, the likes of us for your kingdom. May we represent you well. May we, in turn, look out for others younger in the faith and invest in them so that they, too, can have eternal impact for the people in their circles. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.